Hello and welcome back to OA On Air, the official podcast of O'Neill & Associates. I'm Kyan Isaacson and we're back. Hope everyone had a happy Thanksgiving. Now, the holiday gift-giving season upon us and we're talking books this week, for you or someone on your list. This week on 321 Go, we're talking cannabis in Massachusetts, Christmas trees real or fake, and have a quick discussion with local author Dave Wedge on who really is the best frontman in rock and roll. And then we talked to Dave about his most recent book, 12, the inside story of Tom Brady's fight for redemption. And in two minutes with Tom this week, we're talking about more books. And Tom's talking what he's saying might be his book recommendation of the year with The Fifth Risk by Michael Lewis. First up, three, two, one, go. Let's talk about something important. Welcome to 321 Go on OA On Air. I'm your host, Cosmo Macero. In this installment of 321 Go, in Massachusetts, we finally have the first week of recreational cannabis sales under our belts, and it was huge. More than $2 million in sales by just two retail locations open so far for non-medical sales. We'll recap the retailing of Reefer. <laughs> yep. And are you worried about the environmental impact of your Christmas tree? Well, you probably need to get a hobby. But seriously, we'll tell the truth about embracing a more sustainable Santa with a little help from the New York Times and our own in-house expert on Christmas trees and tree farms. Finally, writer and journalist Dave Wedge is promoting his new collaboration with co-author Casey Sherman, the Tom Brady deep dive entitled simply 12. Dave joins us in our interview segment to discuss the book, his talks with Brady, and his love for the New England Patriots. But first, he stops in at 321 Go for an important debate. Is Freddie Mercury the greatest frontman of all time? That's right, we're taking Dave's Facebook chatter to the OA on Air studio. Joining me here on 321 Go is Kyanne Isaacson. Hello. The official voice of OA on Air. All right, let's get to it. All right, Kyanne, took about two years for this day to come or this week to come, but we finally have recreational cannabis stores. Open in Massachusetts, there's two of them, Cultivate in Leicester and the New England Treatment Access location in Northampton. They also have one in Brookline, but only the one in Northampton selling retail. Two locations, barely a week, $2 million in sales. The industry has not disappointed when it comes to the revenue potential. If you've seen the coverage, literally long lines the lines of cars reminded me of pictures of the 1970s gas lines that's how long these lines of cars are waiting to get into these facilities people willing to wait all day because they've been waiting a lifetime waiting a <laughs> lifetime for cannabis <laughs> to be legal and now it is um, so a huge success. Am I right about that? Fair, oh, yeah. fair Four, to say. So $2 million a week, $440,000 in the first day alone in yeah. two shops. Um, I think success is putting it mildly. However, with success comes some issues, um, and we've seen those at play too. Uh, long lines, yep. traffic. Um, the facility in Leicester had to get more parking spaces. They had to get more security. On site, they also had to get uh, porta potties because people who had been waiting in line for hours were using neighbors' lawns to use the restroom, which is disgusting and disrespectful. Sure, um, you know, who who anticipates 
that as a problem, but traffic and long lines. Um, we've got three more coming, most likely, in the next month or so. Um, Salem, Wareham, and East Hampton. And these are three more communities that are now going to be grappling with an influx of people. Yeah. And sort of how do you deal with that and manage it without turning them away? Yeah. And, and, and I think th- th- there will be um, some motivation of the can- for the Cannabis Commission to, to really – make sure this process moves along because they know there is this tremendous demand that needs to be addressed with supply. And um, there, there's something something to be said for anticipating that kind of volume. I don't know until you actually see and experience the level of, uh, of customer interest like that that you understand, okay, so now we know how much of an impact this is going to be. I, I think everybody who's opening a business especially a regulated industry where people have been anticipating for a long time. They want to be good corporate citizens. Yes. And so what these stores have experienced in this first week, they need to address that, and I guarantee they want to. question is, how do you address some of these things? You, you, you can't overnight increase the capacity of the road leading up to your store, especially in a rural area like Le- or quasi-rural like Leicester. Yeah. So some of these things are going to be real challenges, and and the communities are struggling with them, and, and, and a lot of people aren't happy. Um, that stuff has to work itself out. I think it will, but it's not going to be overnight. But I think a lot of it will work itself out as more retail locations get open. Yeah. Once you don't have – right now there are only two. There are 192 recreational licenses currently in play. Yeah. What the lines and traffic at each of those locations look like, even if we get a quarter of a way there, if there are 50 locations instead of two, yeah. um, I think that will kind of help solve itself. Yeah. But with any industry, as you say, there are learning pains and they're experiencing them. Yeah. As problems go for a new industry, crushing consumer demand is a pretty good problem to have. But you got to make sure you take care of your neighbors and that you're respectful to your host community. And I think we'll probably see that happening. Yeah. All right. Thanks. All right. It's the holiday season. It's the Christmas season. And that means it's Christmas tree time. You know, three quarters of all American households. Um, actually display a Christmas tree of some kind. There is a, well, I don't know if it's a debate, Cayenne, there is a, uh, you know, a divergence between artificial and real trees, real trees more prominent here in the Northeast. Um, and, and a question, the New York Times explored this in a Q&A, a, a true or false, uh, as to which is sort of better for the environment. Uh, we have here in studio our special guest, our colleague, Laura Warwick, who is a actual 100% true Christmas tree farmer because your family runs the what the Riverwind tree farm it's the Riverwind tree farm based out of Lancaster Massachusetts I've been there it's a tremendous facility thank you and uh this is your busy season it's like three weeks right it's not even a season it's like three weeks and there's a sprint exactly we sold a couple hundred trees the first weekend and we probably expect to be open the next two to three weekends all right excellent so Let's do a little cute, little uh, true or false here. Laura, let me just go to you. Cutting down trees, cutting down Christmas trees is always bad for the environment. True or false? That is false. That's false. Now, now why is that? That's because we 
typically grow and plant two to three trees for everyone that someone cuts down. Um, because we because we plant so many for everyone that's cut down, it's actually very green, and uh, we put a lot of time and effort, and so do Christmas tree growers, into um, planting and growing those trees. And it, ta- it takes, what, I think about not even 10 years for a five or six, six uh, foot tree to grow. So industri- industry-wide, not, not just your farm, but farms in general will plant multiples for that one tree. Exactly. And, you know, the, the trees definitely t- tend to grow at different rates, but I'd say anywhere between five to ten years. Um, you'll have a full-grown Christmas tree. And there's a lot of environment uh, benefits to the environment. You know, they clean the air, they help the watershed, and they're great habitats for wildlife. We actually um, actually feed some of our Christmas trees that have been cut down to our goats that are nearby. Um, if you grow natural Christmas trees, they're actually great food for goats. That's Who knew? And, by the way, it's a wonderful experience to go out and cut down your own tree. That's such a fun um, factoid. It is a fun. It is a fun <laughs> Christmas tree. Great goat goats. <laughs> stuck on the goats. It's good for goats. They are. All right, Cayenne. Uh, when you take into consideration air travel and the consumerism, and oh, my, my big hang-up environmentally with Christmas is the packaging. The the, the, the pa- packaging just just boxes wrapping. Pl- there's so tissue much paper. packaging, tissue paper. Anyway, if you take all that into consideration. The, isn't the Christmas tree itself just kind of a, a drop in the bucket when it comes to environmental impact? True or false? Uh, true. True. If people were that focused on Christmas being green, according to the studies in the American Christmas Tree Association, again, who knew there was one of those? Um, it's mo- it's everything else you do. So it's the driving, it's the flying, it's the wrapping paper and the excessive amounts of tissue paper. Um, that does a lot more to harm our planet than Christmas trees yeah. and the cutting down of them, which our resident expert has explained is actually really good for the environment. And it's just good for the holiday spirit because who doesn't love going and picking out a Christmas tree? And it's good for the goats. All right. <laughs> Reusing an artificial tree reduces its environmental impact. I'll answer that. That actually is true. Um, and... Uh, I guess shockingly to me it was, the American Christmas Tree Association, uh, they, they did a survey conducted by Nielsen. They found that of those 75% of American households that display a Christmas tree, the majority of those, 80%, are artificial. Most of the trees in America are fake Christmas trees. I was so surprised by that. I was Are you too. surprised by that, Laura? Because you see all these people coming in. You know, I think I think the, the group of people that really want to pick out a tree, cut it down. They're a very passionate group. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, we've seen it grow it's a nice little bit every year. Um, but, uh, you know, it doesn't, you know, we have people that come every year and they tell us, oh, my gosh, we've had an artificial tree every year. This is our first year here. We're excited to get a, really? a real tree. So every year, a significant amount of the customers we get um, are actually first-time real tree so this so just an interesting follow-up. The American Christmas Tree Association, by the way, represents the manufacturers of artificial Christmas trees. So that's important to know because they conducted this study which found that 80% of all yeah. trees are artificial trees. And then the, their talking point is reusing a tree, and, and you can't argue with that. It, it, you also pay for it only once. Reusing a tree, you only pay that 100 bucks, $107 once. Um, number two, you can reuse it. That's that, that that reduces its environmental impact. But don't forget, these artificial trees made of mostly PVC and steel, and of course manufactured in, wait China. for it, China, and shipped to the USA. So there you go. Eventually, 
end up in a landfill because and, they're really hard to recycle. And they will eventually end up in a so landfill. there's that too. Correct. All right. One more, Laura. The greenest real tree is one that's bought locally and then recycled. That is absolutely true. That is absolutely true. Well, buying locally is important. You can't really, unless you're having, you know, like the city of Boston has its trees shipped from Nova Scotia, and every year the White House picks picks a tree farm somewhere in the country. They ship it, but that's not what the average consumer is going to do. You're going to go buy it somewhere, um, preferably at a local farm or like a, like a Lions Club or somewhere where right. they get them from Maine. But, um, yeah, buying locally is important. It is because, you know, you're you're guaranteed to get better quality too when you buy locally um but it's also you can support your local communities and your local farmers so um and it's a great experience you know oftentimes if you go to a local farm um you'll get more of that holiday spirit you'll get the hot cocoa the apple cider and all those good things that come out donuts cookies that come with picking out your own tree we've been talking christmas trees with our resident christmas tree expert laura warwick of riverwind tree farm thanks laura thanks for having me guys all right Right, we're excited to have Dave Wedge in the house a little bit later to talk about his latest book, 12, author and journalist Dave Wedge on OA On Air. But first, Dave's here right now. Dave, Bohemian Rhapsody, is a, it's a big hit movie right now, uh, sort of a biopic on, the, on, uh, on Queen, but specifically Freddie Mercury, a terrific front man, oh, one of the best. And in your opinion, the based, best. The, based on a recent <laughs> Facebook string, which has been going on for days still, you say the greatest front man of all time. Yeah, I, I don't think there's any comparison. I mean, there's lots of other front men who, you know, did great singers, great stage moves, all that stuff, great talents, but no one put it all together like Freddie. The guy is an incredible showman, dancer, singer, piano, guitar, opera, you know, mixing opera in with his music, and just pop. I mean, he just had it all, and he had the swagger to boot. All right, well, let, let's start by reaching some common ground. Let, let's, throw, let, let's throw some out. David Lee Roth. Uh, not even in the not, conversation. Not even in the conversation. Not for me. Not a big Van Halen fan. Yeah, I, I got you. And I love metal, but yeah, Mick Jagger. Mick Jagger's in the conversation. He's he's, I mean, incredible frontman. Obviously, still doing it, but doesn't have the vocal yeah, chops. New, new tour coming out. New yeah, tour. Yeah, yeah, I mean, he, I mean, he can't. He he could never do anything that Freddie does, and Freddie could do everything that Mick Jagger could. Do. Roger Daltrey. A, another one in the conversation. Uh, uh, I put Freddie ahead of him because of the the versatility and the, and the musical technicality. But Roger Daltrey is an incredible talent as well. I mean, Tommy is some of the greatest music ever made to me. But I still don't think there's any comparison. I really don't. What about like fast forward to the '90s, like Eddie Vedder? Again, he's a rock singer. These guys, these guys are all rock singers. Freddie yeah. was so much more than that. Freddie was Freddie was as good a rock singer as all these guys you're talking about. But he had that extra level of showmanship. Freddie could have done theater. He could have done actual opera. Yeah. I mean, he could have scored stuff. He's, I put him more in a category of Frank Zappa where he's way more than just a rock star. He was a, a musical prodigy. Yeah. Okay. Totally different level. Fair enough. Fair enough. And a great front man. The elephant in the room here, though. The elephant in the room, Robert Plant of Led Zeppelin. I mean, I, who, is the, who is the actual greatest front man? 20-year-old kid gets up on stage, looks like some kind of Norse god, and had the most unbelievable range. Oh, and by the way, 
the singer for the greatest rock band of all time. Uh, I well, okay, that's subjective, but um, no, he's he's phenomenal. I mean, I'm not going to say Robert Plant isn't in the conversation. I just think that. Um, again, Wait, now he's not even in the conversation. No, he's no. I said he is. He is in the conversation. But I, I'm a little down on Led Zeppelin as I get older. I just I, I think How they because so? I think they ripped off a lot of their music from other bands. I, I don't think they're as original as people give them credit for. I think there's a lot of bands doing a lot of the stuff they did. Um, they're great. Don't get you me wrong. Like Jimmy Earl, Page is great. Like John Bonham was great. You know, Robert Plant, phenomenal frontman, incredible. Stairway to Heaven. I mean, that's that's Queen I mean, level stuff. It is. But you're I probably the best music journalist I know personally. I don't want to say your credibility is in tatters right now, but <laughs> I think your credibility might be in tatters. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, no, that's okay. Um, yeah, no, I, I, that's that's amazing. I, I, and I get where you're coming from on the on the on the borrowing stealing thing because a lot of those early blues riffs that you, that worked their way into how many more times and dazed and confused. Everyone, everyone did it and everyone does it and everyone continues to do it. All yeah. the bands today are stealing from these bands. We're talking about it. It happens. It's all cyclical. I get it. I just think Led Zeppelin gets too much credit. Like, they're the best, no question. It's like everyone's Eric Clapton's the best guitar player. I can name you 20 guys in metal that are better than Eric Clapton that he could never play their stuff, and they could play all of his stuff. Tom Morello. Tom Morello, I, th I think he's as good. Yeah, I mean, yeah. No, I, 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 and again, I, 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 I use the Frank Zappa. I use yeah. the Frank Zappa example. Frank Zappa is every bit as good a guitar player, if not better than Eric Clapton. Yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll argue that with anyone. Yeah. I, I, Clapton's great, don't get me wrong, but it's yeah. like it's like this conventional wisdom that like, oh no, he's God. Yeah. Led Zeppelin is the rock gods. Like you can't challenge that. Well, you can make a case for a lot of bands and fair. a lot of guitar players. Yeah, fair enough. And and and, I, and I'll admit I'm an all in, you know, chest deep Led Zeppelin fan. I love Led Zeppelin. Um, Loved them. I have all every one of their albums. Have and it's funny. I, I, there, there, there's two polls. There's a, there's a Billboard. And there's a Rolling Stone. I think Billboard has Freddie Mercury number one of all time. I think Rolling Stone had Robert Plant. So we're having the right conversation here. Yeah, they're, and, they're and, the two we're guys, We're having I the think, right yeah. conversation. And then, you know, some pe people bring James Brown into it and Prince. I think those two guys are on that level as well. They're close. You know, I, it's certainly not like those two guys are way better than Prince and James Brown. Like, go back and watch some of those old tapes of Prince. Again, guitar, guy could play as good as anyone. Absolutely. All right, Dave Witch, thanks for joining us here on 321 Go. That's all for 321 Go. Up next, an interview with Dave Wedge on his most recent book, 12. All right. Our guest today is author and journalist Dave Wedge, former colleague of mine from the Boston Herald and also author of the Amazon best-selling book on Tom Brady, 12, right? New York Times bestseller. New York Times bestseller. Yeah, How yeah. dare I? New York Times, yeah. Excellent, excellent. Dave, good to see you. Yeah, you too. Great to be here. Thanks for joining us on OA On Air. I want to get into the Brady book. You and I, both longtime Patriots fans, uh, like everyone else in New England, but uh, want to dig into that. But first, I want to just step back for a moment and reference your one of your earlier books, The Ice Bucket Challenge, about Pete Frazier, because there's some news Actually, as we speak, as we're talking today, about about the Frady's family and some and some things they're doing right now, am I right? Yeah, yeah. So it's you know the Frady's family is incredible, and you know my wife Jessica Heslam, another good friend of yours, who yeah. columnist the Herald, um, um, she does a great job. She interviewed Nancy Frady's yesterday, and uh, the family actually has launched a new foundation um, called the uh, Frady's Family Foundation, and the goal there is to raise money 
to treat ALS patients. All the money from the Ice Bucket Challenge has mostly gone to research. Sure. There's a big void and a gap between insurance costs and, and you know, people's uh, own personal finances to cover that um, amount, incredible amount that it costs to, to treat ALS patients. You know, Pete Frades, for example, his his monthly medical costs are 80000 80, to $100,000 wow. a month. Uh, it's unsustainable. Um, a lot of ALS patients are in similar boats um, unless they go into a facility. And, you know, the point of the foundation is, you know, Pete wants to be home to see his daughter grow up. You know, he doesn't want to have to have his, his four-year-old daughter come and see him in a sterile hospital. He wants to be home when, when his wife is reading her bedtime stories. Other ALS, ALS patients deserve that same dignity. Costs a lot of money, though. They need around-the-clock nursing care. So that's that's what this foundation is going to going to pay for. That's terrific. And that's it's a great, great. Great story, exclusive in today in the in the Boston Herald this week. Now, I'm always fascinated by how books originate and come together. Your first book, Boston Strong, uh, made into a, a a hit motion picture uh, uh, film starring Mark Wahlberg, and that came together because you were covering the marathon yeah. farming, literally, uh, for the Herald. Uh, you developed relationships, and, and, and that became really a, a, an incredibly important book and piece of history. Twelve, the Tom Brady book. Mm. How, what's the origination of that, and, and how, the idea, how it came together, and, and, and really the opportunity? I bet a lot of people have thought about, I'd like to write a book about this angle on the Patriots, but you've got to have a way in yeah. to, to, to do the reporting with, by the way, your wonderful co-author, Casey Sherman, who was right. uh, a, a, a voluminous uh, author in his own right. Yeah, he's prolific. That's for sure. Um, so, I mean, it's it's uh, it is funny how, the way these th- these things come together. And Casey and I have had, you know, first of all, we work really hard. You know, we we both work jobs, as you know. I'm over at State Six, uh, yep. you know, uh, a marketing firm in town, and um, so these projects kind of pop up on your radar from time to time. And with the success we've had with Patriots Day. Um, you know, the opportunities have just come. So after we did Patriots Day, uh, Casey and I were kind of talking about uh, possibly doing a, a book about the dark side of the NFL. Around that time, it was right after Bounty Gate and Bully Gate, uh, Deflate Gate, obviously, and yep. uh, the Ray Rice case had just happened. And we kind of thought to ourselves, like, you know, there's a story there with all these scandals in the NFL and the way Goodell has kind of botched them all. Um, and while we were kind of thinking about that, the Frady's family uh, reached out to us and asked us to meet. And um, Casey and I didn't know a lot about the Frady's family at the time. We just knew what the Ice Bucket Challenge was. We went up and met with them. We immediately learned, like, this is an incredible story we need to tell. And so we, we, we worked on that book and kind of tabled the uh, the NFL thing. Flash forward to after the Frady's book comes out, and then that incredible Atlanta Falcons Super Bowl happens. Sure. We're watching that game. Literally, uh, within hours after that game ends, we get a text message from the screenwriters that wrote... Patriots Day. They also wrote The Finest Hours, which was Casey's book, and they wrote The Fighter. Sure. Uh, these guys, Paul Tamasey and Eric Johnson, and, and we're working on them with some other stuff. They texted Casey and I in a group text and said, guys, this is a movie. And we're like, what's a movie? We're just watching the Super Bowl. And they go, yeah, this this is a movie. Like, all right. So we got on a call with them, and long story short, they said, you guys write the book. We're going to make the movie. And that's how the whole thing started. And so Casey and I took that idea we had of, like, the dark side of the NFL and said that's got to be our theme. It can't just be a, a football story because it's, it's bigger than that. It's a courtroom drama. It's a thriller. It reads more like a, like a Grisham novel yep. than it does, you know, a bio. It's not, it's not the Tom Brady biography, you know, no. and I don't want people to get it twisted on that. You know, Tom Brady will write a, a fantastic memoir someday, I hope. It's, but, it, it, but it's about that story it, of, it, of, it, of, of, 
Redemption it's that period. may not be the right word, but redemption in that in that getting getting even on on all that he went through, right? It's that we we chose very specifically to write about the period of Deflategate to the end of that Super Bowl because we think that's Tom Brady's ultimate. And I, we do use the word redemption, yeah, because he was pilloried. You know, he was really oh, sure. embarrassed, uh, and you know he doesn't like to talk about it, and the, the organization won't talk about it. But make no mistake about it, that season was all about preserving Tom Brady's legacy. He was. Uh, he was embarrassed. He was mocked uh, by the media, by other players in the league, yeah. um, and it was it was pretty bad. And it, we got a sense of that. We did, you know, we did some interviews with Tom for the book, and yeah, you had he, some. A- you, didn't, you didn't have like had, unlimited access, but you right. had some access to him, right? Yeah, we had some access to him. It was it was kind of controlled. You know, we had to. Uh, be, you know, we we weren't really allowed to ask him stuff about Deflategate. He didn't want to talk about it, um, and that's fine. You know, we we did our research otherwise. But what what was very telling was. And some of the stuff we talked about with football with him, he referenced a lot of the off-the-field stuff that was bugging him, and he talked about how hard it was to go through that suspension and come back from that. He also talked a lot about his mother, which is all in the book, about his mother was going through cancer at the time. So he had this really trying season where, for the first time, his reputation was under attack. He's also dealing with this personal stuff with his mom being sick, and he's getting older. So it's a very... When Tom Brady's all done playing, I think he'll look back, and I think fans will look back on this 18-month period is kind of the the uh, most amazing era of his career. Yeah, no, I, I think That game, right. you know, the game. Oh, it was unbelievable, unbelievable. We're talking to Dave Wedge, author and uh, journalist Dave Wedge. Tell me about the moment when you know, um, oh, there's the story. You know, we have, it's like I remember, it was a long time ago, being a journalist and, you, and, and you're, you're doing all your reporting and you're pulling things together and, you, and there's a moment when you like when you reach I have the story and everything else just kind of falls into place. How does that apply to say writing a nonfiction yeah. book? Yeah, it's a little different with a book because you know with a news story you have that one nugget that yeah. kind of tells the story and, and you break some news. Yeah. Um, with a book you have to find several little nuggets to break news and we were able to do that and, and the biggest uh, news that we broke with this book was, you know, when, when it was announced that we were doing the project, it, it made kind of big news when it came out that the screenwriters of these movies were partnering with us to do this project. Um, you know, people started reaching out to us, you know, you need to talk to this person, I got a story. So one of the first uh, entities to reach out to us was the NFLPA, the Players Association, yeah. and Demora Smith, the head of the Players Association. And he hadn't told the full story of Deflategate yet. The union had kind of, you know, they they represented Brady and all that stuff, and the lawyers talked a little bit, but they told us, you know, we have some stuff that that needs to be out there. So we got some news out of them, and the biggest one was, um, you know, Brady's reaction to when Kraft dropped the appeal. Brady was blindsided by that, didn't know it was coming. And the other one was um, after Brady won his appeal and the NFL was appealing that ruling, there was a negotiation period, and what was put on the table was the uh, the NFL said pay a million-dollar fine no suspension, but you, you're going to have to do a mea culpa and say, you know, these these um, employees, you know, I, I need to apologize. You know, he basically had to throw these guys under the bus. Sure, Brady sure. said no, wouldn't do it. So that made pretty big news yeah, when the book first came out. Yeah, that was an uncomfortable period, I think, probably for the whole franchise, for fans, <clears throat> and, and certainly for Brady. Yeah, 100%. Um, so a couple summers ago, I'm uh, with my kids on the Cape, and it was one of those days we're not at the beach, you're doing this, and we're looking for something to do. And I'm like, oh, they turned that crappy that crappy animal and uh, sea museum into this cool pirate museum yeah and we walk in there and we learn the whole story of the 
the widow. I think I'm saying it maybe yeah, right yeah. or wrong. Yeah, that's right. And then I, I've, not long, much longer later, I see that your production company is named for that. Uh, and, and I want you to tell me about that. So, that's yeah. a production company that you started with Casey uh, to get into film and television yep. and content. And, uh, and and that may be one of the projects, that so, remarkable story of that pirate ship. Yeah, so, so th- things move fast, Cosmo. Yeah. That we've, we've, ar- we've already changed the name from Widow. We've moved on. Okay. It's actually Four Point Media now. But don't... Uh, but it was Witter for a long time yeah, yeah, when yeah. we started out, and, and Witter is still a project that that we are involved in. Uh, Barry Clifford is one of the greatest treasure hunters, really, in history. He's the only uh, explorer in the world, I believe, that's found an actual tr- uh, pirate's treasure. Yeah, a, a buried. He found a bar- buried treasure. It's almost comical. But it was. Um, I watched these clowns on Oak Island on the History Channel. I'm like, guys, give it up. This guy yeah. in the cape has got, you know, it, it's actual a, gold. A couple hundred million dollars, <laughs> yeah. and this was uh, gold that was that was uh, that was transported here on slave ships. Yeah. So the 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 beauty of that story is that Barry Clifford could just sit back and retire on all that gold, but he's decided that he's just going to preserve it and never spend it because of its origins. Sure. Because it came from slave labor. Yep. Um, so. There's a great story there that that's part of you know that's one of the many projects we're working on right now. That the next thing that's in line is the Frades, uh book. We we uh, have a, a a deal in in the works with a a major studio, and we're hoping that the movie will go into production in the spring. And uh, the Brady one is still moving forward as well. Those screenwriters are they've got a couple of other projects that they're. Uh, actively shooting right now, and so we're waiting for that next one. It's it Hollywood takes a while to move, but. Um, we have a lot of good stuff going on. I have no complaints. You yeah, know? yeah. I mean, it's it's a it's a terribly cliche, but how how do you find the time between all that? You, you, you're holding down a job in marketing and PR. You're writing for Vice and uh, nights and, and weekends, Esqu- buddy. Es- yeah, and es- <laughs> Esquire. I I I know the Bushwick Bill interview is the pinnacle of your career. It really was. To be <laughs> honest, if I'm being candid, it, it <laughs> probably was. I mean, well, actually, what happened with and that was for Dig Boston. I yeah, did that one. Right. What happened there? That was a few years ago. But the Ghetto Boys, you know, one of my favorite uh, groups growing up. I, 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 one of the only journalists that's interviewed all three. Yeah. And I got all three of them for that piece, and I was real proud of that. Um, wild story, though, those guys. Real quick on the state of the media, uh, you know, I, I, I have felt as I've, as past do- dozen years, transitioned into a different business related, but different, that what's, what's good for the PR and, and, and uh, communications uh, business. Uh, creating your own content and delivering it directly to your audience mm-hmm. has has not been great for the for the news business mm-hmm. and certainly the newspaper business uh, has really suffered a precipitous drop. Um, j- just your thoughts on that, I, 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 and and um, what comes out on the other end because there is still great journalism in so many different places every day. Mm-hmm. Maybe more, maybe a higher volume of great journalism than than even before. It's just uh, people are consuming it differently, uh, and, and old school newsrooms are, are are really really been transformed. Yeah, I think I think the the big guys like the New York Times, Washington Post, you know, Wall Street Journal, while their business models are not great e- either, they're surviving and actually thriving right now, especially under Trump. Um, there's so much great investigative journalism to be done with this administration, and I think they're really capitalizing on that. Um, I, I think about this Miami Herald investigation with Jeffrey Epstein that that just happened, and uh, Anthony Acosta. You know, I don't know if you followed that, but that's an example of like 
amazing shoe leather journalism. Like they they broke a huge story about this, you know, child sex ring and and all the cover ups that were involved in that. So, I think there's still an appetite and a thirst and a, and and, a, and a, a need as a society to have this great journalism. The, what's getting lost is the mid-level journalism, these smaller papers like the Patriot Ledger, yeah, yeah. the Enterprise, my hometown, the Lowell Sun, the Lawrence Eagle Tribune, all these once really great papers that are struggling. They've got, you know, four reporters, two editors, you know, the sharing editors, sharing yeah. copy desks. You know, the Herald, um, when you and I were there, you know, 50 reporters, you know, now they're down to what, eight you know, and, and that's that's no criticism of these outlets. It's just there's more competition in the market. It's it's ad dollars are really hard to come by these days, and that's how it's all funded. So uh, I don't know where it goes. I think that you know content is still king. So you have to find a way to create the content. Someone's got to pay for it, though. I think just final words. I, I, I I'm glad that that that. that Young people are still uh, are still deciding. I want to go into journalism. I want to be a journalist. Yeah. I want to be a reporter. We, you and I came up roughly around the same area. I'm out in Springfield, Western Mass. You were in Attleboro. You're right. There were so many opportunities mm -hmm. for a young journalist to start a career, and, and, and within two years, be positioned in a really great newsroom, learning a lot in yeah. Lawrence, in Lowell, in Springfield, you know, Worcester Telegram, in Worcester, you know, Providence Journal was a great Fall paper. River, Providence, all kinds of opportunities. Yeah. And, and they've really, really sort of shrunk, and it's become it's become more difficult. But uh, and the same is true in radio and TV as well. You know, radio and TV are not uh, the, the the cash cows they once were. They're struggling as well. So um, everyone's migrating to the phones, obviously. And and you know, it's not even desktop anymore. It's 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 phone. It's oh, yeah. mobile. It's all mobile technology. And if you don't have a good mobile product, you, you're done. So that that's really where the opportunity is, in my opinion. For you know, I think of our, our friend Michael Morata and, yeah. and what he's doing with Indy Six One Seven, that, oh, sure. that new uh, streaming radio station. It's become a streaming news outlet. The app's phenomenal. You know, it's it, the app is better than a lot of the traditional news apps that I see. Yeah. So I think that's where the opportunity is. Is for these, they have to really evolve and truly evolve. They can't just pretend evolve. Yeah. All right. We've been talking to Dave Wedge, author and journalist. Dave, uh, co-author of um, uh, Twelve. The Ice Bucket Challenge and Boston Strong. Dave, great to see you, old friend, and uh, great to have you here in OA On Air. Same here. Happy to be here. Thanks, Cuz. All right, thanks. Thanks to Dave for joining us. Now, Two Minutes with Tom. Hi, Tom. How are you? Welcome back. It's been a couple weeks. Yeah, I know. It's, it, we, had a, we had a week off of Thanksgiving, didn't we? We did. Did you have a happy Thanksgiving? I did. I hope you did. I did. Nice and easy. That's how I like to do Thanksgiving. Yeah, we had a nice like and easy, travel. quiet and family and a, a lot of family, but it was, uh, and I said quiet. I didn't mean quiet. <laughs> but did you have to travel? Oh, just to Cape Cod. We uh, had my family and, and Shelly's family down. It was, it was great. It's nice. Yeah. yeah. We didn't have to travel. That, to me, is the key to a good Thanksgiving. Yeah. No travel. Which meant you didn't travel, I guess. I did not. No. So there is a book that you have been talking about a lot lately. Here in the office, the fifth risk, uh, by Michael Lewis. Michael Lewis's book. Uh, for anybody that's read *Lies Poker* or any of his other books, um, I, I must tell you, I'm just a devoted fan to Michael Lewis. And the fifth risk is a, is a worthwhile read. So you have recommended it. I have not heard you really say what it's about yet. Can you can you 
explain? Well, I can. I'll, I'll give you the thumbnail description because I don't want to ruin the book for anybody. And it's it's a good read. You can it's it's a good one night read. To be very honest with you, one night. Yeah, you can read it in a, in a couple of few hours. Um, okay. And basically, it is it is the story, the inside story of the Trump administration. What is really going on? What havoc is being is being struck? Um, you know, we all we can't we kind of all see the local television and and you know the digital kind of path of of, of news coming out about the Trump administration. Um, you know, the the idiosyncrasies of our president and what he does to take on people, attack people, denigrate the situation. Uh, put his arms around a, a dictator, whatever it might be. We everybody gets that, but what you don't know is what is truly going on in the in the inter- in, in the interior of of the administration. What is what decisions are being made to overturn years, in in some cases decades, of buildup between Republicans and Democrats to give you know a United States policy where we are today to watch the disruption going on under this president over these last two years. And it only takes on three, uh, three secretariats. But I, I will tell you, um, what is going on, the bloodletting is extraordinary. And um, I, I think it's just a real eye-opener for what the people of the United States have elected as the president of the United States and the havoc which is being created by this president. I, I shouldn't say another word. If you, if you know Michael Lewis as a writer, you will, whether it's Moneyball, as I said, or any of the other things that he's written, you, you appreciate the depth of which he gets into the subject that he's writing about. And this is, this is fascinating reading. It's eye-opening, it's jaw-dropping, and it's a must-read. So the big question, mm. are you submitting it into the office Yankee swap this evening? Uh, the, the 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 Yankee swap this evening. Mm-hmm. I'm not giving this book away. Oh, I, I'll, that I'll good? let people. Yeah, it's good, and it's going in my library. I love you know I I love hardcover books that I can hold in my hands and Same. and read. You know when I when I put a pillow under my head at night in bed, I just love it. And uh, the and convenience of a Kindle is great, but there's just nothing like a good. The, book. I, I love Kindle, and you know I read it. I use it on yeah. airplanes and things, but there's nothing like a good book. I agree. All right. So um, The Fifth Risk. The Fifth Risk. Again, a worthwhile read. Is uh, Tom's book recommendation of the month. Well, almost of the year. And and I tend to read at least a book a week if I can. Wow. Mm. Okay. Now I have to go catch up on my reading. Two Minutes with Tom. Thank you, Tom. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That's it for this week's episode of OA on Air. Don't forget to subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud, or our own O'Neill & Associates website. Talk to you next week.